And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnell. This is the Ken Hudnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, today is February the 5th. 36th day of the year. 329 days remain till the year's over with. Holidays and observances. It's National Nutella Day. Can't say I particularly care for it personally. National Primrose Day. National Fart Day. Run out and get a whoopee cushion today. National Sicky Day. National Chocolate Fondue Day. National Weather Persons Day. National Monarch Day. National Apprenticeship Day. International Networking Week. Women's Heart Week. Feeding Tube Awareness Week. National School Counseling Week. Pride in Food Service Week, Boy Scouts Anniversary Week, Burn Awareness Week, Solo Diners Eat Out Week, National Patient Recognition Week, African Heritage and Health Week, and Children's Mental Health Week. Birthdays, Michael Sheen, Jennifer Jason Lee, Darren Chris, and Bobby Brown. National Black History Month, Canned Food Month. National Snack Food Month, National Children's Dental Health Month, Harley Quinn Month, National Embroidery Month, National Grapefruit Month, National Women Inventors Month, Great American Pie Month, International Vegan Cuisine Month, American Heart Month, National Cherry Month, National Bake for Family Fun Month, National Bird Feeding Month, National Hot Breakfast Month, National Library Lovers Month, Low Vision Awareness Month, National Fasting Month, and North American Inclusion Month. And in 62 AD, earthquake in Pompeii, Italy. 1576, Henry of Navarre adjures Catholicism at Tours and rejoins the Protestant forces in the French Wars of Religion. 1597, a group of early Japanese Christians were killed by the new government of Japan for being seen as a threat to Japanese society. And certainly that could well happen. 1783, a Calabria, a sequence of strong earthquakes, begins. 1810, Peninsula War, Siege of Cadiz, begins. 1818, John Baptiste Bernadotte ascends to the throne of Sweden and Norway. 1852, the new Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia, one of the largest and oldest museums in the world, open to the public. 1859, Alexandru Ion Kuza, Prince of Moldavia, is elected as Prince of Wallachia, joining the two principalities as a personal union called the United Principalities, an autonomous region within the Ottoman Empire which ushered in the birth of the modern Romanian state. 1862, Moldavia and Wallachia formally unite to create the Romanian United Principalities. 1869, the largest alluvial gold nugget in history called the Welcome Stranger is found in Maliagul, Victoria, in Australia. 1885, King Leopold II of Belgium establishes the Congo as his personal possession. 1901, J.P. Morgan incorporates U.S. Steel in the state of New Jersey. Although the company wouldn't start doing business until February 25th, and the assets of Andrew Carnegie's Carnegie Steel Company 
Albert H. Gary's Federal Steel Company and William Henry Moore's National Steel Company are not acquired until April the 1st. But it's always good to get a jump on things. 1905 in Mexico, the General Hospital of Mexico was inaugurated, started with four basic specialties. 1907, Belgian chemist Leo Bakelin announces the creation of Bakelite, the world's first synthetic plastic. I remember in grocery stores used to give Bakelite plates away. 1913, Greek military aviators Michael Matusis and Aristides Berardinis performed the first naval air mission in history with a Farman MF-7 hydroplane. 1913, Claudio Monteverdi's The Last Opera. Lyman Coronazion di Papayas performed theatrically for the first time in more than 250 years. He probably wasn't there to see it. 1917, the current Constitution of Mexico is adopted, establishing the Federal Republic with powers separated into independent executive, legislative, and judicial branches. 1917, the Congress of the U.S. passes the Immigration Act of 1917 over President Woodrow Wilson's veto. 1918, Stephen Thompson shoots down a German airplane, the first aerial victory by the U.S. military. 1918, the SS Tuscania is torpedoed off the coast of Ireland, the first ship carrying American troops to Europe to be torpedoed and sunk. 1919, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and E.W. Griffin launch United Artists. You know, interestingly enough, Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest, came in third. 1924, the Royal Greenwich Observatory begins broadcasting the hourly time signals, uh, known as the Greenwich Time Signal. 1933, mutiny on the Royal Netherlands Navy warship HNLMS, the Zeven Provincian, off the coast of Sumatra and the East Indies. That wasn't good. 1939, General Missimo Francisco Franco becomes the 68th Codillo y Español, leader of Spain. Current uh, king and queen are cousins, distant cousins, but still cousins. 1941, World War II, Allied forces began the Battle of Karen to capture Karen, Eritrea. 1945, World War II, General Douglas MacArthur returns to Manila. 1958, Kamal Abdel Nasser is nominated to be the first president of the United Arab Republic. 1958, a hydrogen bomb known as the Tybee Bomb is lost by the U.S. Air Force off the coast of Savannah, Georgia, never to be recovered. Right near Tybee Island, I might add. 1962, French President Charles de Gaulle calls for Algeria to be granted independence. <coughs> 1963, the European Court of Justice ruling in Van Gen and Luce de Netherlands administrative de Belastingen establishes the principle of direct effect, one of the most important, if not the most important decisions in the, the development of European Union law. The principle of direct effect is the principle that union law may, if appropriately framed, confer rights on individuals which the courts of member states of the European Union are bound to recognize and enforce. 
not explicitly stated in any of the European Union treaties, but the uh, it was first established by the Court of Justice of the European Union. It's subsequently been loosened in its application to treaty articles in the um, ECJ, European Court of Justice, uh, has expanded the principle, noting it's capable of applying to virtually all the possible forms of European Union legislation, most important of which are regulations and certain circumstances to directives. Well, 1967, Cultural Revolution, Shanghai People's Commune is formally proclaimed with Yao Wenyan and Zhang Chanquo being appointed as its leaders. 1971, astronauts land on the moon in the Apollo 14 mission. 1975, riots break out in Lima, Peru after the police forces go on strike the day before. Uprising known as the Lamazo is uh, bloodily suppressed by the military dictatorship. 1981, Operation Soap. Metropolitan Toronto Police Force raids four gay bathhouses in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, arresting just under 300 uh, folks, triggering mass protests and rallies. 1985, Hugo Viteri, the mayor of Rome, and Chedley Klebe, then the mayor of Carthage, meet in Tunis to sign a Treaty of Friendship officially ending the Third Punic War that lasted 2,131 2, years. 1988, Manuel Noriega is indicted on drug smuggling money laundering charges. He was the president of Panama. 1994, Brian DeLa Beckwith is convicted of the 1963 murder of civil rights leader Medgar Evans, Evers. 1994, Mark Gale Massacre. More than 60 people are killed and 200 wounded as a mortar shell explodes in a downtown marketplace in Sarajevo. 1997, the so-called Big Three Banks in Switzerland announced the creation of a $71 million fund to aid Holocaust survivors and their families. 2000, Russian forces massacred at least 60 civilians in the Novye Aldi suburb of Grozny, Chechnya. 2004, rebels from the Revolutionary Artabanite Resistance Front captured the city of Ganives, starting a 2004 Haiti Rebellion. 2008, a major tornado outbreak across the southern U.S. kills 57. Uh, 2019, Pope Francis becomes the first pope in history to visit and perform papal masses in the Arabian Peninsula during his visit to Abu Dhabi. Uh, 2020, President Donald Trump is acquitted by the U.S. Senate in his first impeachment trial. 2021, police riot in Mexico City as they try to break up a demonstration by cyclists who are protesting after a bus ran over a bicyclist. 11 police officers were arrested. They were probably told to arrest themselves and take themselves off to jail. Now, we've been talking about all kinds of bizarre things. Um, where is, there it is. And we got a bunch more mysteries to talk about. How about the main penny? It's a thousand-year-old Norse coin found in a prehistoric archaeological site in New England. The question is, how did it get there? 
It was August 18, 1957. Amateur archaeologist Guy Melgren is excavating the Goddard Archaeological Site on the uh, central Maine coast. Now, the Goddard Site, if you're not aware, is a large prehistoric Native American settlement at Penobscot Bay from which thousands of artifacts have been collected. A few weeks into his dig, he found a small silver coin buried in the ground. Identified as a 12th century British penny, maybe brought to Maine by the 17th century English colonists, and in 1974 donated along with 30,000 other items discovered at Goddard to the Maine State Museum. Well, historians were, of course, uh, intrigued by the centuries old artifact. 1978, experts from London examined the coin and declared it was probably a Norse. Kawahorn Skare of the University of uh, Oslo, I'm sorry, probably Norse, uh, Kawahorn Skare of the University of Oslo declared the coin of Norse origin and estimated been struck between 1065 and 1080 and circulated to the 13th century. Time of the coin circulation, years the Goddard site was occupied and period in which the Norse Vikings inhabited Greenland and possibly travel more widely in North America, all overlap. It's been suggested the penny's discovery on the main coast indicates the Vikings had ventured beyond Greenland. Maybe they brought the coin to Maine. And if the Norsemen did not visit Maine, maybe the coin was traded with native people living around Greenland and then moved further and further south on subsequent uh, native trades. Maine penny is an example of an object called a out-of-place artifact, or an oop. There's also something in the law called oop. That's when an attorney screws up. And they always say, oh, it's human error. These things happen. The mere fact we violated the law, well, we're members of the fraternity. You can't blame us. Um, Now, an oop is an artifact that shouldn't exist, either because the technology needed to produce it didn't exist at the time of their presumed creation or because they defy accepted scientific knowledge such as a widely held belief the Vikings didn't visit places south of Greenland. Well, certainly, it it appears they did. Let's talk about uh, the Dorchester pot, a seemingly contemporary object that's released from rock hundreds of millions of years old. Figured that one out. It was June 7, 1852. article appeared in Scientific American that described the discovery of a metal vase-like object embedded in a 15 feet of solid sedimentary rock. The vase was recovered in two pieces after an explosion was used to break up the pudding stone rock at the Meeting House Hill in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Uh, it was done in 1852. The vase um, was four and a half inches high, six and a half inches in diameter at the base, and two and a half inches in diameter at the top. Made of zinc, Handsomely decorated with a floral pattern and inlaid with pure silver. Um, So the question becomes, how did the so-called Dorchester pot get there? Ancient alien theorists claim the out-of-place artifact had to be old as the rock itself, which is estimated by geologists to have formed between uh, 570 and 593 million years ago. So the question is, were metal workers plying their trade in North America nearly 600 million years ago? If that's the case, we got to re reevaluate our uh, historical uh, learnings. 
Mainstream observers say the vase was actually a Victorian-era candlestick. Well, that mystery's never been fully resolved, nor is future research likely going to solve the enigma. The Dorchester pot and all the papers related to its study went missing long ago. Apparently somebody at the museum was kind of light-fingered. Well, let's talk about the London Hammer. A common 19th century tool in Texas disproved uh, conventional history about the age of mankind. Well, while walking along the Red River Creek near the town of London, Texas in 1934, a couple spotted a curious sight. A chunk of loose rock with the head of a hammer and part of the handle encased in it. Metal hammer head is six inches long with one inch diameter. Styles believed to be similar to tools manufactured uh, in the U.S. in the late 1800s. The rock it was found in, on the other hand, was at least 100 million years old. Well, speculation about the real age of the hammer and how it ended up embedded in solid rock is still being bandied about. Some creation theorists claim the out-of-place artifact, known as the London Hammer, dates from the time of the Great Flood described in the Bible. Others say the unusual find is evidence of ancient aliens or even some type of government conspiracy. Scientists suggest maybe a more credible explanation. The Islamic minerals in the ancient limestone hardened into concretion about the hammer, common process that occurred in a relatively short period of time. You can see the hammer on display at the Carr Edwin Balls the Creation Evidence Museum in, of Texas in Glen Rose, Texas. All kinds of things can be found in Texas. Well, let's talk about the Shroud of Turin. Is it the actual cloth Jesus was buried in after he was taken down from the, the crucifixion cross? Well, regarded by millions of Christians as the funeral cloth of Jesus Christ, the Turin Shroud is one of the holiest and most controversial religious items in the world. <coughs> For centuries, historians, researchers, theologians, and lay people have intensely debated the matter. Some folks say that even the most advanced scientific testing has been unable to establish conclusively, conclusively the authenticity of the shroud. It's a sheet of linen measuring 14.5 feet long by 3.7 feet wide. Front and back of the cloth bear a faint brownish image of a naked man with his hands folded across the groin. Figure's been measured to be as tall as six foot two. Cloth has red or brown stains like blood indicating injuries conforming to those uh, Jesus suffered during the crucifixion. Well, the history of the, the shrouds is as mysterious as the cloth itself. The uh, cloth allegedly bearing the image of a crucified man was exhibited in a small church in the Larry in France, about 1357. Some people believe the Crusaders brought the item to Europe from Constantinople about 1204. 1453, the cloth found its way to a chapel in southeastern France where it was damaged in a fire in 1532. Nuns attempted to repair the damage with patches, and 46 years later, the cloth was sent to Turin, Italy, where it remains today at the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist, the property of Vatican City, like so much else. 
Scientific examination of the cloth was first permitted in 1969, at which time scientists determined the shroud image was indeed that of a crucified man and not the product of an artist. 1988, the Vatican authorized radiocarbon dating of the relic. Small samples of the cloth were laboratory tested by three different research institutions. Each lab said the object dated between 1260 and 1390, many hundreds of years after the burial of Jesus. Well, some researchers, though, claim the test samples were cut from the patches used to repair the damage after the 1532 fire. 2013, Science at the University of Padua in Italy examined the shroud using infrared uh, light and spectroscopy. They suggested the, crowd, the shroud could be at least 2,000 years old, which would make it in the right time frame to have been the burial cloth of Jesus. Well, let's talk about the Black Stone of the Kaaba. It's a treasured religious icon believed by many to date to the time of Adam and Eve. But it remains hidden from the scientific community, which is probably a good thing. Handsomely draped in a black and gold silk veil, the Kaaba, the ancient cube-shaped Grand Mosque in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, sits in the center of Islam's most sacred sanctuary, Al-Majid al-Haram, testing to the importance of the, of the Kaaba's, the expectation that Muslims everywhere in the world face that structure when praying. Built into the eastern cornerstone of the Kaaba is the Black Stone, one of the most venerated icons of the religion of Islam. This object consists of three large pieces and some smaller fragments held together with a silver frame. The stone, which measures 8 inches by 6.3 inches, is normally covered with a thick cloth called the Kishwa. The legend surrounding the stone is rich in history. According to Muslim tradition, the stone fell from the skies during the days of Adam and Eve. Once dazzling white in color, it's turned black because it's absorbed the sins of the pilgrims to Mecca who've touched it over the years. Stone has suffered a tumultuous history over the centuries as well. During the siege of Mecca in 683 A.D., a projectile shot from a catapult said to have smashed the stone to pieces. The fragments were rejoined, but in 930, cremations, members of the Shiite Muslim sect, stole the stone and held it for ransom for more than 20 years. Stones returned broken into several pieces. In the 11th century, man trying to smash the stone caused further damage. 1674, somebody allegedly desecrated the stone by smearing excrement on it. Well, among the many questions, is this black stone of heavenly birth a, a supernatural substance or maybe part of a meteorite? Is it a common rock? Well, we're probably never known. No scientific examination of the, this precious relic has ever been permitted and is likely not going to be permitted. Nobody wants to have their sacred beliefs uh, disrupted by something as mundane as a scientific uh, examination. Well, let's talk about the famous Viking horde. Swedish island becomes the repository for enormous collections of silver amassed by Viking traders and explorers. It's known as Gotland, a large island in the Baltic Sea about 50 miles off the southeast coast of Sweden. Been inhabited since historic, uh, prehistoric times. From about 800 to 1150, it was home to Swedish Vikings, expert seafarers who accumulated enormous wealth trading with Eastern Europe and the Arab world. 
Now part of Sweden, Gotland is home to numerous hordes of Viking treasure. The world's largest Viking silver treasure was accidentally discovered in a field at the Spilling Farm near Slight in uh, southern Gotland by a film crew preparing news coverage of illegal Viking treasure hunting. Three large caches of riches were eventually uncovered at that site. Ultimately, the so-called Spillings Hoard yielded uh, 14,300 silver coins, hidden away sometime after the year 871. Hoard had been hidden under the wooden floorboards of a building used as a shed. And found in two separate deposits located only feet apart, the treasured proudly been bundled up in cloth, the leather, or wooden boxes, all of which had rotted away in, over the centuries. Spillings hoards on permanent display at the Gotland Museum in the city of Visby on the island. Excavations of the more than 60 Viking coastal settlements have turned out traded goods from Italy, Poland, Turkey, Russia, and Iraq. In exchange for the exotic wares of these trading partners, the Vikings of Gotland offered cloth and iron and furs and other items. And more than anything else, it was silver, mainly coins and jewelry that the Vikings desired. To date, more than 700 silver hoards have been discovered on Gotland, accounting for nearly 170,000 silver coins. Well, let's talk about another Viking-related situation. The Northern Lights, Viking legend explains this colorful sky phenomena. It persists despite the scientific explanation. Now, today we all know the Northern Lights as the Aurora Borealis, a naturally occurring phenomenon in the sky resulting from the interactions between solar winds and the Earth's magnetic field and outer atmosphere. Energy-filled particles from the solar winds become trapped in Earth's polar region and become electrically charged. This produces a spectacular multicolored light show that has fascinated and frightened humanity for millennia. Well, numerous stories of the magnificent lights have been linked to traditional North folklore and legends. North mythology, Bifrost is a colorful bridge connecting Midgard, or Earth, and Ashgard, the realm of the gods. The bridge is frequently described as covered with flames, burning a bright fire red. And throughout the ages, the glowing arch-shaped lights of the aurora were claimed to be Bifrost, providing Vikings who died in combat passageway to their final resting place. I like that much better than a scientific definition. Warfare, warfare is also linked to the lights in another legend, which claim they symbolize the fire edge of a sword during battle. Well, many other oral, oral legends are told about the, these strange flickering lights. One claims are the reflections of the armor and shields of the Valkyries, the female warriors who appear in numerous North mythologies and sagas. In Iceland, the, the lights were said to relieve the, birth, uh, the pain of childbirth. In Greenland, the lights were a forbidding omen during delivery, believed to be the souls of babies who died at birth. Well, historical meteorological data suggests the northern lights didn't appear often during the age of the Vikings. Given a profusion of tales associated with the Aurora Borealis, though, it played a significant and enduring role in Viking culture and folklore. Modern-day stargazers appreciate the magnificent beauty of our solar system, though they don't always understand what they're seeing. Well, from the Royal Borealis, let's turn to the Kensington Runestone. You know, this raises the issue. Have scholars found compelling proof the Vikings explored deep into the interior of North America? 
It was November 1898. Swedish farmer Olaf Ullman and his 10-year-old son Edward were clearing land near their home in the rural town of Solomon, Minnesota. As Olaf pulled out a tree stump, a stone entwined in its roots came from the ground. It stood two and a half feet tall and weighed 202 pounds. Edward noticed some unusual inscriptions on the slab, so Olaf took the stone to the nearby settlement of Kensington, where a villager claimed the markings were ruins, the ancient Norse alphabet. Copy the markings and sent to University of Minnesota, where Olaf J. Breda, professor of Scandinavian languages, declared the stone was a modern forgery. He forwarded copies of the inscription to experts in Scandinavia who also deemed the uh, inscriptions a contemporary fake. Well, disheartened, he hadn't found a convincing piece of evidence for an early North presence in the U.S. Ullman sold the stone to Northwestern University in Illinois for $10 in 1911, which was not an, a, uh, a bad price. Scholars there determined the artifact was a hoax and gave the stone back to Ullman. Norwegian-American historian Hajimar Holland, however, believed the inscription was genuine and had the t uh, text deciphered. According to what was carved on the stone, eight Goths, 22 Norwegians on an exploration journey from Vinland to the west, camped by two skerries, or rock islets, one day's journey north from this stone. We were to fish one day, and we came back to find ten men red with blood and dead, AVM, which means Ave Virgo Maria, saved from evil, have ten men by the sea to look after our ships, 14 days travel from this island. And it's dated 1362. Well, the consensus among runic experts is the Kensington Stones of Fraud. They contend the vocabulary and grammar of the inscriptions include forms that didn't exist in the 14th century but were common in the U.S. in the 19th century. And in addition, the runes that uh, represent numbers in that uh, inscription relate to the Arabic system, a form very people knew in 1362. Well, on the other hand, if the stone is a forgery, it required a well-read and talented forger. Did Olaf Ullman try to bamboozle everybody with a well-executed effect? Was there a co-conspirator involved? Well... There was, if you believe, the 1973 deathbed confession of Walter Cran, who said his father John claimed he carved the ruins with Ullman and bluffed the people around the country, especially the educated one, that think you're dumb. And certainly that could well be the case. Well, from the Kensington Stone, let's talk about uh, an incredible engineering marvel. Hadrian's Wall. We talked about that earlier when we talked about the missing Ninth Legion. Stretching across northern England, Hadrian's Wall covers 73 miles of countryside, extending from Wall's End on the east coast to the salt marshes on the Solway Estuary on the west coast. This defensive wall was the work of ancient Romans' greatest builder, Hadrian, 14th emperor of the Roman Empire. The Roman conquest of Britain began in 43 AD. Control of southern Britain proceeded rapidly, but the far north offered stiff resistance to the invaders. Armed clans, tribes, and loosely organized armies pecked away at the Romans' uh, northern advance, often inflicting significant damage on the Roman units stationed in that area, which is what is thought to have happened to the Ninth Legion, 5,000 of Rome's best. By the time Hadrian visited Britain in 122 AD to assess the situation, the wall had already been planned. 
seemed unlikely that the Romans believed the wall could hold back a determined enemy, leading historians to conclude the wall was built primarily as a show of Rome's power and force. Construction began in that same year, 122, starting in the east and proceeding to the west, and was completed in six years, which is a hell of a lot better than we can do with the wall between us and the, the migrant flood. In its final form, Hadrian's Wall was nearly 10 feet wide, 16 to 20 feet high in its eastern portion, all the stone, 20 feet wide and 11 feet high in the western section, built in stone and turf. Fifteen large forts were built to stride the wall on its northern facing. 20-foot wide, 10-foot deep ditch and mound barrier called the Vallum was built south of the wall, running parallel to it. At most points, the Vallum lies close to Hadrian's Wall, but in England's hilly central section, it can be as much as 2,000 feet away. Archaeologists believe the Vallum was constructed as the southern boundary of the Roman military zone with the wall marking the northern boundary. After Hadrian's death in 138, a new emperor, Antonius Pius, built a new wall, the Antonine Wall, about 100 miles north. Hadrian's Wall was abandoned for the time being. Plagued by economic troubles, Rome slowly lost its grip on Britain. In about 410, Roman rule generally ended in the, uh, the British Isles. However, many sections of Hadrian Wall remain standing and well-preserved today. Well, let's talk about one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The mausoleum at Heliconarsis. The tomb built about 350 B.C. at Heliconarsis, present-day Badram in Turkey, for King Masolus of Caria, a region of western Turkey. Mausoleum, which stood 150 feet tall, was decorated with carved reliefs and life-size marble statues of lions and horses and people. At the beginning of the 15th century A.D., not much was left of the colossal edifice, which had largely been destroyed by a series of earthquakes. 1494, crusaders removed most of the remaining stone to build Bodrum Castle, which, where they installed several of the mausoleum statues. 1846, a British ambassador obtained some of the statues for the British Museum in London. Ten years later, the museum and archaeologist uh, Charles Thomas Newton searched for more remains of the mausoleum. But Mr. Newton ran into a problem. The exact location of the tomb had long since been forgotten. After a long research of ancient texts and endless excavation, he succeeded in his quest. He found addition, additional magnificent reliefs and marble figures at the site, including those of Masolus and his wife, Artemisia, and they were also sent to the British Museum. Now, as you might guess, Turkey is currently seeking to repatriate the spectacular marbles of Heliconarsis, arguing the artifacts were removed illegally. And certainly they may win because, after all, those from the East can do no wrong. Let's talk about uh, what's known as the Villa of Mysteries. A sprawling villa on the outskirts of the doomed Roman city of uh, Pompeii contains uh, stunning frescoes whose exact meaning are still a puzzle. It was August 24th and 25th in 79 AD. Mount Vesuvius on the Gulf of Naples in Italy erupted, destroying and burying under layers of ash, molten rock, and gas the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum. Remains of more than 1,500 victims have been recovered so far. Cities were abandoned and forgotten for more than 15 centuries. Pompeii was discovered in 1599 and workers digging an underground tunnel 
uncovered fresco-covered walls. Over the ensuing years, the site became a favorite haunt for archaeologists and excavations were conducted frequently throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. 1909, archaeologists found a, a large, well-preserved villa just beyond one of Pompeii's main gates, known as the Villa of Mystery. The dwelling covered roughly 4,000 square feet and contained about 60 rooms. It sustained little damage in the eruption and for hundreds of years was shielded from the damaging effects of erosion and weathering by the 30 feet of ash and rock in which it was buried. Well, the villa is renowned for the spectacular series of well-preserved frescoes in one of the rooms, a 15 by 15 foot dining area on a Bright, cheery red background and more than two dozen life-size figures painted in the mid-first century A.D. Most are clothed, some are naked. The subject of the frescoes have been debated for more than a century. One interpretation is a scene that depicts the initiation of a woman into the mystery cult of Dionysus, a Greek god-Roman sacred uh, religion that required initiates to undergo numerous arcane rituals. Other scholars claim the scene shows a young bride preparing for her wedding. For centuries, the debris in the room had protected the frescoes and the elements. Once workers began removing the tons of material from the room, the integrity of the frescoes became compromised. Years of neglect and only moderate efforts to preserve the frescoes further endangered the, these invaluable paintings. 2013, a major restoration and conservation project was launched to help preserve and restore the frescoes to their former glory. Well, now from Italy, let's go to England and talk about the famed timber castles. The long-vanished early castles made of wood proved an effective defense against attack during the Middle Ages. Tower of London, Dover, Leeds, Kenilworth, Arundel. You talk about these English castles, that conjures up images of massive imposing stone structures that still stand today centuries after they were built. But the earliest castles in England weren't built of stone, but of timber. Timber castles are often fortified with earthwork defenses, such as mounds and ditches. And a popular form of timber construction was the Moulton Bailey Castle. A fortified tower of wood known as a castle keep was built on a steep-sided, flat-topped circular mound called a moat. A ditch surrounded the moat. An enclosed courtyard, or bailey, uh, included domestic buildings, such as a kitchen and stables. Some castles, uh, some stone castles also built in a moat and bailey form. Timble Castle, on top of the moat, from which the defenders shot arrows on advancing intruders, could be built quickly and was often prefabricated. Pieces could be taken down and reassembled someplace else. The wooden castle keeps were later replaced with stone towers, which, though uh, more difficult and time-consuming to build, offered greater protection against attack. <coughs> Well, let's talk about mysterious megalithic structures on a small Mediterranean island that actually rivals Stonehenge. It's called the Tallas of Menorca. And the Spanish island of Menorca, located in the far western Mediterranean, is the northernmost of the Balearic Islands, about 270 square miles in area. It measures about 30 miles at its widest point. Humans are believed to have inhabited Menorca uh, for at least 4,000 years. 
Among the small rocky islands, most influential people were the uh, Telluric culture, which inhabited the region beginning about 1000 B.C., and maybe even earlier. Well, the Teleotic people uh, erected numerous stone structures, including uh, Teleoites, from which the culture's name derives, believed to be homes, defensive barriers, or lookout or signaling towers on the eastern island of the Bellics, such as Menorca and Mallorca. Menorca's renown, though, comes not from the, these abode-shaped structures, but from enormous stone megaliths called Tullus structures that resemble Stonehenge in England. They're T-shaped with a large, flat, horizontal slab surmounting a tall, upright stone. The word uh, tala means table in the local Catalan language. Structures earn this description because many of the known 13 talas were buried under rock and dirt, which left only the table-top-like slabs exposed. Now, researchers don't know why the talas were buried or who buried them. They range up to 12 feet high, and each one's surrounded by a horseshoe-shaped wall with shorter stones. Tallest are found only on Menorca. Nowhere else on the Bellerics. Well, just like with Stonehenge, the precise function and meaning of the Tallas are unknown. Of course, everybody has theories. According to one theory, the, they were either temples for Teleoic gods or representations of them. Figurine of a bronze bull is found in the Menorca village of uh, Toralba, the in Salord, home to a large Tola. Now, since early arrivals of Menorca may have come from Crete, it's been suggested that the Teleotic people worshipped the bull god, a figure similar to the Cretan bull of the Minoan culture. Other theories suggest the Tolas may have served as places of healing or prehistoric celestial calendars, once again the fallback position. It has to do with the sky. To date, no single theory has proven more valid than any other. A lot of studies going on, but nothing definitive thus far. <coughs> All right. Let's talk about one of the ancient world's most celebrated and well-known sites. The Lost Gardens of Babylon. You know, the legendary hanging gardens of Babylon, the earthly paradise of less vegetation and breathtaking pools and waterfalls, has long been considered one of the most spectacular of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's only one problem with that, though. Not only is the site of the hanging gardens uncertain, a lot of scholars suggest they may not have existed. No physical trace has ever been found, not a bit of archaeological evidence to support their existence. So did they really exist? Well, the first known written mention of the Hanging Gardens appears in the ancient writings of Berossus, a Chaldean priest in the early 3rd century B.C. He described the spectacular gardens and claims they were built by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II, who ruled from about 605 to 562 B.C. Further accounts of the gardens are provided centuries later by Roman historian Quintus Curtius Rufus and Greek writers uh, Clitarchus uh, Diodorus Siculus. Strabo and others, but no first-hand accounts of the gardens has ever been found. Most of the ancient texts claim the hanging gardens are located near the royal palace in Babylon, the southern capital of Mesopotamia, <coughs> region that included present-day eastern Syria, southeastern Turkey, and most of Iraq. The garden sat atop a man-made structure, likely a ziggurat of multi-tiered uh, terraces. 
exotic vegetation of all types, colors and fragrances grew uh, in that uh, area. Lush greenery flowed down the side of the building. Handsome statues and ornately carved stone columns adorned the ground surrounding this botanical Eden. Ancient writers tell us an advanced system of irrigation, pumps and conduits and water storage tanks carried water from the Euphrates, enabling a garden to bloom in the, the arid desert. According to researcher Dr. Stephanie Dowley of England's Oxford University, the hiking guards of Babylon have never been found because they weren't in Babylon to begin with. She says they were built 300 miles away in Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire near the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. She also contends it was the Syrian king Shinashareb who built the gardens 100 years earlier than scholars thought. Dr. Dalen might be on the right track. Excavations at Nineveh revealed a sophisticated irrigation system and carvings at the royal palace showing a large garden watered by an aqueduct. So could the, the millennia-old legend of the magnificent gardens at Babylon be a geographic misplacement? Certainly all things are possible. Well, let's talk about a number of mysteries that have fascinated people. How about crop circles? These mysterious circles of unknown origin appear in English crop fields, leading many observers to believe they were made by extraterrestrials. Though there has been two gentlemen who claim that they did it with a board and a rope, but I don't think they traveled the world doing it. Now, reports of strange geometric patterns appearing in crop fields date back nearly 350 years. 1678, an illustration published in a British pamphlet depicted the mowing devil legend in which Satan himself is laying out a field of oats in uh, a circle. For a scientific report on the phenomenon appeared in Nature magazine in July of 1880. Writer of the article, John Caprin, suggested the unusual circular spots he observed in a wheat field in Guilford, England were caused by heavy winds. 1960 reports from Australia attributed uh, circles and crops to UFO landings. But in the 1970s, crop circles began appearing in large numbers, particularly in the countryside of southern England. By 1990, the circles and patterns, which usually appear mysteriously overnight, have become complex designs. Well, explanations for the phenomena range from the credible to the absolutely ridiculous. Simplest explanation and most plausible is humans have made the crop circles. This became evident in 1999 when a man from Southampton, England named Doug Bauer revealed he and his friend David Corley had responsible for at least some crop circles. One night in 1976, Bauer suggested to Chloe they go to a wheat field in Wilshire and make it look like a flying saucer landed there. So they made the circles using a wooden plank to flatten the stalks of wheat. Little did the two imaginary amazing hoax would spawn a legion of copycat tricksters and lots of worldwide crop circle industry in which movies and books and websites and symposiums and sightseeing tourists keep the phenomenon alive and well. Many multinational uh, companies such as Nike, uh, Pepsi, and Microsoft have even created crop circles to promote their wares. I have difficulty picturing Nike, uh, people wearing Nikes out in the field trying to create crop circles. How about uh, talking about some bizarre burial customs? You know, the most certain aspect of life is death, and it's universally shared by all humanity. But how societies treat their dead is not. According to Christopher Bullock in The Cobbler of Preston in 1716, it's impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes. 
Benjamin Franklin, in a letter to French scientist John Baptiste Leroy in 1789, reworked the familiar refrain saying, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. High society views death and mourning, reveals much about its traditions, religion, and social life. From the ancient Sumerians of Mesopotamia who buried their dead beneath the family home to the Egyptians who mummified their dead rulers and entombed them in mammoth pyramids to the ancient Indians who cremated people of distinction and put their remains under a memorial shrine. Burial rites have traditionally varied greatly from culture to culture. In the eyes of most Westerners, there's a list of death rituals that might well be considered unusual, if not downright bizarre. According to 10th century Arab traveler writer Ahmad Fadian, the Vikings in the Middle Ages buried the body of a dead chieftain in a temporary grave for 10 days. One of his slave women was forced to have sex with every man in the village, after which a tribal matriarch killed her. Bodies of the chieftain and the woman were put in a wooden ship that was set on fire and drifted away on the sea. Centuries ago, the, the Bo people of Pond Valley in southwest China put their dead in wooden coffins and hung them nearly 300 feet straight up the side of a cliff. These coffins hung undisturbed, perilously resting on wooden poles inserted into the cliffside. Dozens of hanging coffins remain to this day. Then how about endocannibalism, eating the flesh of a dead relative? That was practiced here recently by many tribes around the world, notably the Melanesians of Papua New Guinea and the Wari people of Brazil. Anthropologists viewed the practice as a final act of goodwill and respect to the deceased. I don't know if I'd go along with that. Cavatino people on the island of Luzon in the South Pacific buried the dead standing upright in hollowed-out tree trunks selected by the deceased before they die. The Cavatino believe trees sustain human life, so in death humans must reciprocate, giving their bodies to the trees. Then we have a highly publicized account of one woman's past life, which has grabbed worldwide attention. Shanti Devi, born in New Delhi, India in 1926, didn't speak until the age of four. When she did, she told her family her home wasn't in Delhi, but in Mathura, 90 miles away. Said her husband owned a cloth shop and a couple had a son. Shanti called herself Shalbin, meaning Shalbi's wife. She described Matura in detail, although she'd never been there. Described the food she ate and the clothes she wore. Even gave details about her own death, giving birth to her son. Well, at about the age of nine, she told a relative her husband's name was Pant Kandamnath Chubby. Relative contacted Pandit, informed him of all the statements Shanti had made, and Pandit came to Delhi with the son of his first wife and his present wife. Shanti immediately recognized Pandit as her husband, though she said a little at first, and when she saw her son from a previous life, the one she died giving birth to, she burst into tears and hugged him. In the time they spent together, Shanti told Pandit things only his first wife would have known. He's convinced Shanti had lived a previous life as his first wife. Story spread like wildfire, comparing Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of the independence movement in India, to form a special committee to study the case. It arranged for Shanti to visit uh, Mathura, where she repeatedly provided intimate details in the Identification of people, places, and past events. To this day, Ashanti Devi remains one of the most prominent and best-studied cases of past life memories. Doesn't really prove reincarnation, but it's a highly significant uh, uh, event anyway. For millions of people, reincarnation is an accepted fact. For them, the case of Shanti Devi is proof of their beliefs. Well, researchers and scientists have studied thousands of cases of reincarnation, but... 
Skeptics quick to point out uh, criticism of any alleged proof. I mean, how can science prove something that's related to the human soul? Well, our next topic is a little bizarre. Do ancient texts reveal when and if aliens came to Earth? Now, the literature of all classical ancient cultures abounds with descriptions of unusual aerial phenomena. Modern reader knows these phenomena as UFOs, unidentified flying objects, and extraterrestrial life forms. <coughs> Possible evidence of UFOs and aliens dates back thousands of years to ancient cave drawings. The New York's caves in France have a diagram of what looks exactly like a 1950s sci-fi movie spaceship. Only thing is, it was drawn 12,000 years ago. Flying disc-shaped objects are found in cave drawings in Itolo and Tanzania that date back more than 20,000 years. Depictions of alien-like beings wearing space helmet-type headgear have been found in caves in Australia and the Sahara Desert in Algeria. Ancient texts describe phenomena that many people believe to be early reports of UFOs. In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel tells of seeing winged human-like figures commandeering strange mechanical wheels. Ancient Indian epic poem, the Ramayana, relates the Pushpaka car, that uh, aerial and excellent car going anywhere it will, car resembling a bright cloud in the sky. I mean, it may appear as this 1,700-year-old text could be describing a gleaming alien spacecraft. And while most historical accounts of UFOs can be ascribed to natural phenomena, several ancient reports have yet to be explained. These accounts were described in a paper written by NASA's uh, Richard Struthers that appeared in Classical Journal in 2007. He said, Celebrated historian Josephus reported the Sky Army over Judea in 65 AD. Throughout all parts of the country, chariots were seen in the air and armed battalions hurtling through the crowds and encompassing the cities. In 74 BC, thousands of Roman soldiers witnessed a strange aerial event. All of a sudden, the sky burst asunder, and a huge flame-like body was seen to fall. In shape, is like a wine jar, and in color, like molten silver. That was according to Plutarch. Then a close encounter of the third kind, observation of an extraterrestrial being, was reported by Roman historian Levy in 214 B.C. At Hadria, an altar was seen in the sky, and around it were forms of men dressed in shining white. Certainly, that could well be... Um, A report of what they actually saw as opposed to something they made up. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about who was Jack the Ripper. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.